welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, with anticipation, open your word and looking forward to hearing from you. And I would just ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Open our hearts, open our minds, give new life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we saw the amazing faith of Abraham and Sarah in waiting for the promise of descendants and the promise of the land. And uh, even though there was nothing in their circumstances that would make them believe those promises would come true, they trusted the Lord, right? They trusted in him and his character. This week, we're going to see Abraham's uh, ultimate test of faith. And if you guys turn to Genesis 22, we'll be there in just a little bit, just to look at the backstory of this. If you don't have a Bible, just Google ESV. Genesis 22, and you can follow along with us, but it'd be helpful. In our passage, though, in in Hebrews, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So the full account, of course, is in Genesis 22. Let me read that for you. In Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Spoiler alert, uh, God does not intend to have him actually offer his son. This is a test, right? God did not intend for him ever to offer his son, he later gives explicit commands in his law about child sacrifice. It's very clear God's not going to actually have him do this. But Abraham doesn't know that. And that's what makes this a test. God tests his people, right? He tests us. He tests us both to reveal our hearts and to refine our hearts. How many of you guys have been tested by the Lord? How many of you guys have been through tests? How many of you have had your heart revealed in a way that was really helpful to you through those tests? How many of you have had your heart refined through those tests? This is God's grace to us. You know, a lot of times we think of God testing us. We don't see it that way. But this is God's grace to us. We need this. We need God to reveal and refine our hearts, don't we? We find that out after a test, maybe not immediately so. And you guys might be a little hesitant to say, yeah, I need God to reveal my heart and refine my heart because you kind of don't want to sign up for it right now. And I get that, but we do admit before the Lord that it helps us. This is his grace. And this was an epic test for Abraham. Abraham loved Isaac. Abraham had been waiting for this boy for what seemed like forever. Isaac's name meant laughter. 
This is Abraham's treasure. This is Abraham's joy. This is Abraham's everything. And when God called Isaac the son whom you love, this is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. Abraham loved his son. But there's more going on here, guys, than just a father who loves his son. Because Isaac wasn't just Abraham's son. He was the son of the promise. Okay? And this is really important. And you see it in this strange wording here where it says, God says about Isaac, he says, take your son, your only son. And you're thinking like, Ishmael pops out of the bushes. He's like, uh, okay, so I see how it is. <laughs> right? So Abraham actually later had multiple sons, but this son... Isaac was the son through which the promise had to come, okay? There was no other way for the Abrahamic covenant to come except through this son. God made this really clear. If you go back to Genesis 17, before Isaac was born, Abraham was totally content to have Ishmael be the one. He's like, oh, Lord, just let Ishmael be the one that brings the promises, right? Ishmael was the son that Abraham had by kind of taking matters into his own hands, so to speak. And uh, it, he was totally content for that to be the one to bring the promises, but God insisted, right? He insisted it be Isaac. He insisted it be Isaac because it had to be through the, the promised son, the son that God would provide. Because, guys, salvation is God's work, not man's work. And it had to be through the miracle child that God would provide. So that's what makes this offering that Abraham has to make here an epic test. Think about it. How will God fulfill his promises to Abraham if Isaac's the only one it can come through and Isaac dies? You see the problem? He doesn't just have this like intense fatherly love for his child. He does have that, but he also has a big theological problem here. How will God fulfill all these huge promises he's made if Isaac's the only one it can come through and he dies? How can God call Abraham to do this? How can he call for Isaac's death? In this moment, guys, it seems that God's commands are contradicting, nullifying, even destroying his promise. Made all these big promises. Now he's calling for Isaac's death. It seems that what God's commanding is somehow nullifying or destroying his own promises. That's what's going on in Abraham's head. And that happens in our own lives too, doesn't it? Sometimes God does things or commands things that seem to jeopardize what we feel like is his promise, a blessing to us, right? You guys had this happen before? Sometimes God commands things in his word that seem to run contrary to him blessing us. It's like, if I was going to follow this hard command God's given, how am I going to have the kind of blessed life that I think God has for me? Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever wondered? If I obey this hard command, how will I be blessed? It's a test, right? It's a test, like with Abraham. Will I obey his word and trust him and trust him to bless me? It also happens even more severely when God allows things to happen in our lives that seem to run totally counter to his promise to bless us, right? Sometimes he brings dark providences that, that come upon us and make us think there's no way God's going to be able to fulfill his, his promise, like in Romans eight twenty eight to cause all things to work together for my good, and then this thing happens, and you're like, I don't see how these can fit together. I don't see how God's will in this area fits with his promise here. It's a test, Right? It's a test. Will we trust him that he's going to work all things for our good, even when it looks like he's doing the direct opposite? You guys been there? You guys are quiet. Okay, so I would say yes. Guys, when severe suffering strikes, it will seem like God is making his promises impossible. 
especially that particular promise to work all things for our good. Notice the words I used, when and will. When severe suffering strikes, it will seem as if God is making that promise impossible. And yet here's Abraham, and he believes. That's why he's in the hall of faith, right? He believes, he has faith that even if Isaac dies, God's going to somehow still fulfill his promises. He trusts him. And, and we need to recognize here that Abraham's been walking with the Lord for a while, right? Abraham's had some time to get to know God. Abraham's had some time where he's seen God come through again and again. God rescued him with his little trouble with Pharaoh, which he partially caused. Um, God rescued him again with his trouble with Abimelech, which was the same trouble that he partially caused. God provided for Abraham when Lot chose the better land. God provided for Abraham when he went to battle to rescue Lot from the, the terrible kings of that land. And God provided this miracle baby. So he's had a long time to learn to trust God. How many of you guys have known the Lord long enough now that you know that he always comes through? How many of you guys have known him long enough to like, I've seen it. You know, I know it from scripture and I've seen it from experience. How many of you guys is the trial you're going through right now not your first rodeo with the Lord? Not your first rodeo. And that's so helpful, isn't it? Um, some of you guys haven't known the Lord as long as some of these other saints, perhaps seasoned saints, I don't know, if you want to be called seasoned. But it's helpful. The longer you know the Lord, the more prepared you are to trust him. And that's the place Abraham's in now. It's been a lot of years, not his first rodeo. God has shown himself trustworthy, so Abraham trusts him. God has shown himself faithful, so Abraham trusts him. So he has faith in him. So Abraham, it's amazing, when he gets this command, he doesn't delay. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. He did it first thing in the morning, right? But it wasn't easy. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, then Abraham said to his men, stay here with the donkey and the boy, and I will go over there and we will worship and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. By this time, Isaac is actually grown. He's probably stronger than Abraham. You can see him. He's the one carrying the wood, right? And it says in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And that's where we get that name for God, Jehovah Jireh. Have you ever, ever heard that before? Jehovah Jireh is, is the Lord will provide. That's what he named the place. 
And so how did Abraham pass this test? I mean, how did he have faith to believe that even if Isaac died, that wouldn't stop God from fulfilling his promise, even if the promise had to come through Isaac? We know his obedience flowed from faith because Hebrews, if you go back to Hebrews 11, we'll go back there. It says, by faith, he offered Isaac. But how exactly was it by faith? Like, what did he believe that made it possible for him to think that Isaac could die and the promise would be fulfilled? And what's so cool is the author of Hebrews tells us, look at verse 19 in Hebrews 11. He, Abraham, considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. So that's what's going on in Abraham's mind. Abraham believed if Isaac died, God would simply resurrect him and then fulfill his promises through Isaac. Isn't that amazing? Genesis doesn't tell us the thought process that Abraham had, but Hebrews does. And aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that the book of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking? Because now we know how he passed the test. Now we know what he was thinking. Genesis doesn't tell us that Abraham knew God would resurrect Isaac, but there actually was a hint there. Did you guys hear it? Back in Genesis 22.5, Abraham says this to the servants as he's getting off the donkey and about to go up the hill. He says this, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. There's a hint there, right? Of what he was thinking. The writer of Hebrews tells us what was going on inside, but he did say it. And that's an unnecessary piece of dialogue there, guys, unless that is exactly the thing Abraham was counting on. He was counting on the fact that if he slaughtered his son, God would raise him from the dead and they would both come back. And it must have helped him so much to confess that out loud to his servants, right? As he's on the way and he's about to go up the hill and he, and he says it out loud, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We'll be back, right? Abraham was convinced that somehow Isaac would return with him because God's promise is all bound up in Isaac, It's the only way God could do it. Resurrection was the only way for him to fulfill his promises, even if Isaac died. And in a way, Abraham did receive him back. Take a look at verse 19 again. It says, he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he received him back. Isn't that amazing? So here we have, in this story, in Genesis 22, we have a father who offers his son and then receives him back by resurrection. Interesting. Does this sound like any other story you may have heard? You've heard the story before, okay? Guys, this is amazing, isn't it? It's, it's such a wonderful picture of Christ and the cross. But you know what's interesting is when you look at the New Testament, there's not a single New Testament author that points that out, that says Isaac is a picture of Christ and the cross. Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating because it's like the offering of Isaac seems like the most obvious foreshadowing of Christ and the cross in the whole Testament. So maybe they were like, hey, you'll find it yourself. I don't know. And verse 19 is the closest the New Testament ever comes to saying Isaac's the type of Christ, but he doesn't quite say it. He just says it's a picture of resurrection, right? Abraham's offering of Isaac is an amazing picture of Jesus and the cross, and it happened 2,000 years before. I don't know about you, but that makes me think this is in a human book, right? When you hear all of these echoes throughout, you know, and you realize that it was written by a whole bunch of different people over so many different years, and then here it is, like this just profound echo of what's coming 2,000 years later. When the greatest father truly did offer the perfect son, his only son, as a sacrifice, like Isaac, Jesus ascended the hill 
in that full love and obedience and trust in his father that Isaac had. He went up the hill carrying the cross, the wood of his sacrifice, the wood he'd be sacrificed on. Then, like Isaac, he allowed himself to be bound to the wood, right? Not with rope, but with nails. And unlike Isaac, though, for Jesus, there was no ram in the thicket that day to serve as a substitute, to save him from death, because Jesus was our substitute, right? Jesus was the ram in the thicket who died in our place for our sin. It was either going to be him or us, and he laid himself down for this. You know, I made a point of pointing out that Isaac was grown in carrying the wood, just so you'd know that Abraham didn't wrestle Isaac down onto that wood. He trusted his father, and he lay down on the wood and was bound, just as Jesus offered himself for us. Jesus says in John, he goes, no one takes my life from me. I hope you didn't get the wrong idea. No one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. He laid it down. Isn't that amazing? Guys, Jesus is the Father's everything. Jesus is the Father's joy and treasure. No father's ever loved his son like the Father loves Christ. Like Isaac, Jesus is the Father's son of laughter, his joy, his treasure, his everything. And yet, this Father gave him up for us. It was the only way, right? Because Jesus was the true Son of promise. It had to come through him. It was either his death in our place on the cross, or it was our death for our sins for an eternity. He was our substitute. Abraham's willingness to offer his son showed his great love for God. Remember, God said this, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And just like that, the Father's willingness to offer his son for us shows us how much he loves us, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Guys, this is how we know Jehovah Jireh. This is how we know the Lord provides. This is how we know that the Lord will provide for all of his other promises. He will provide. He will provide. We know he'll come through on his other promises because he's already come through on the hardest promise he could possibly make, the offering of his own son. Romans 8.32 makes that logic clear. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? See the logic there? I'll read it for you again. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not? Also, with him, graciously give us all things. Guys, the cross shows us that Jehovah is always going to gyra, right? That's one thing he always does, right? He will provide. Like Abraham, we're called to trust him, right? We're called to obey him. We're called to obey him. We get tested. We're called to obey him even when the thing he's calling us to do or even when the thing he puts us through seems to completely nullify or contradict his promise to bless us. We've all been there, haven't we? You know, he calls us to do something or he brings something into our lives, some, some hard obedience or some hard trial, and we think, how can this possibly lead to the blessing you promise? But like Abraham, guys, our faith is strengthened if we believe in the resurrection, right? Abraham passed the test because he believed in the resurrection. Abraham believed that not even death could stop God's promise not even death could stop God from fulfilling his promises. Um, Paul makes this clear later in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there's no resurrection, guys, then God's promises will ultimately fail. He says this, 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know? He says later, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You guys got to grapple with that. For those of you who don't trust in Christ or, you know, don't believe in the gospel, you got to grapple with that. You got to grapple with the dead aren't raised. If this is all there is, this brief life here, and eventually the human race goes extinct and the, the universe just kind of dies a heat death and goes cool and Guys, in a billion years, what you did here doesn't matter, right? There's no one to remember it. There's no humanity at all. I mean, you got to grapple with the fact that if you believe in naturalism, you don't believe there's a God, you don't believe there's an afterlife, you don't believe in resurrection, you got to grapple with the fact that your life means absolutely nothing. Everyone's life means absolutely nothing. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no putting a happy face on it, you know? A lot of atheists, they like to do that, like put a happy face on it. It's like, yeah, it's true, but like we could still live for hope and meaning and love. And it's like, none of that matters, right? There's no one to remember it. There's, there's nothing coming in the future. But what Paul assures us of in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we are raised. And so he says, let us be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Like if we're going to rise again, which we are, then all this matters, all this matters. Your life matters. Your love matters. All these things you hope in are true. And what's so cool about this passage is Abraham actually handed down this unshakable resurrection faith. That's what verses 20 and 22 are about. Check this out. By faith, Isaac invoked future promise on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is so cool because what this shows us is that Abraham actually handed down this resurrection certainty to his son and to his grandson and to his great-grandson. And um, I just want to ask you, do you hand down a resurrection certainty to anyone? Or do you hand down just kind of we hope in Christ in this life only, you know? But what Abraham did throughout his life is he handed down a certainty about the resurrection. All of his kids knew that at the end of their lives, that, that their stories were to be continued in the world to come. You can see evidence of that, that they all thought that their lives were to be continued in, in the life to come. In verse 20, Isaac was dying, right? And he's passing on blessing of the covenant to his boys, Jacob and Esau. In verse 21, Jacob does the same for Joseph's kids. They believe that God's promises were to be continued in the world to come. Look at verse 22. Joseph, believing so firmly in God's promise of a land, wanted to make sure his bones weren't left in Egypt when they left. That's so cool. What he's saying is he's saying, Egypt is not my real home. And let's not forget he was running Egypt, by the way, right? He was second in command under Pharaoh. He's like, this isn't my home. I don't want my bones left here. My true home is in the promised land. It's in Canaan. I'm living as a stranger in an exile in Egypt, even as I rule it. If he thought that, that this life was all there is, why would he care where his bones ended up? He was emphatic though, right? He believed so concretely in God's promise, his promises that would be fulfilled after death, 
that he wanted his bones there. Why did he want his bones there? Because when the resurrection comes, Joseph's going to emerge out of the ground in the promised land, not in Egypt. How cool is that? Uh, that's nice attention to detail, isn't it? You know, that Jesus comes, resurrects everybody, and Joseph, like, you know, comes out of the ground there, dusts himself off, and he goes, oh, this is nice. Isn't that cool? Genesis 22 also gives us a taste of what resurrection will be like. Abraham's experience of thinking he was going to lose Isaac and then getting him back was like a resurrection. Take a look at verse 19 again. He considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Isaac's deliverance from death was like an illustration of the resurrection, of our resurrection, okay? Uh, the way that Abraham received his son back so suddenly and surprisingly and miraculously is a picture of what the resurrection is going to feel like. The way he received his son back so suddenly, so surprising, so miraculously. I mean, a ram caught in the thicket, come on. That's handy, right? That's a miracle, right? That's God providing a way, right? Guys, one day when Christ returns to raise us, we're all going to have that same feeling Abraham did coming down on Mount Moriah. What do you feel like? Relieved? Surprised? <laughs> Wonder? The wonder of narrowly escaping death, the, the feeling that like all is well in a way you've never felt all is well before, that rush of relief, that feeling that like everything sad has come untrue. That's the feeling. That's the feeling after the resurrection. Do you know where that quote comes from? Everything sad coming untrue? It comes from the end of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. And so after all that, you know, they go to Mordor and all this stuff, after all their tribulations, in all their battles that they've gone through to finally destroy the ring, Sam, who's Frodo's faithful companion, wakes up and he realizes, like, everything's okay. He'd been through this, like, just nightmarish battle and everything, right? And it captures really well, guys, the relief that Abraham and Isaac had coming down off Mount Moriah. And it also captures the wonder and the relief and the joy that we're going to feel as we dust ourselves off in the resurrection. I'm going to read some of it for you. So this is what happened after Sam wakes up. It says, When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on a soft bed, and the air was full of sweet mingling scent. Bless me, he mused. How long have I been asleep? He stretched. He drew a deep breath, and he said, Why, what a dream I've had, he muttered. I'm glad that I'm awake. Then the full memory flooded back, and Sam cried out, It wasn't a dream. Then where are we? And a voice softly spoke behind him. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming in the pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. And he said, well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? Sam laid back, and he stared with his mouth open. And for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. And then at last, he said, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then I thought I myself was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening to the world? A great shadow has departed, Gandalf said. And then he laughed, and the sound of his laughter was like music, like water over parched land. And as he was listening, he thought to himself that he had not heard laughter, the sound of pure merriment for days upon days without counting. It fell upon him like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. And then he burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain passes down in a wind of spring, and the sun will shine even clearer. His tears ceased, and his laughter was welled up. 
And laughing, he sprang up from his bed and he said, how do I feel? I don't know what to say. I feel, I feel, waving his arms in the air, I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and trumpets and harps and all the best songs I've ever heard. Guys, that's what our reunion's gonna feel like in the resurrection, right? Except swap out Gandalf and put Jesus in there and you're good to go, <laughs> you know? It's Jesus, our great treasure, and we're gonna enjoy him together and we're just gonna be just blown away like it all came true, Right? If you trust in him, the resurrection is going to make everything sad come untrue. For Abraham, the death of Isaac was like the greatest obstacle between God fulfilling his promises to him. But because of the resurrection, he knew that not even death could stop God from fulfilling his promises. And he believed that. That's how Abraham passed the test, is he believed that. And as we believe that, we will pass any test God gives us. As we believe that not even death can stop God from fulfilling all his promises. And we're going to rise again. You know, the old gravestones, not recent ones, but old ones from hundreds of years ago, they used to say something in Latin on them, resurgum. Resurgum means, I will rise again. How awesome is that? You know? I will rise again. Guys, we're going to rise again. And we know we're going to rise again because we've already seen it happen in Jesus. And if you're in Christ, you're next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And it's not the kind of wishful thinking kind of hope of the world where fingers crossed, you know, I hope it happens, Lord. You have made this certain. You have made our resurrection certain. You've made the resurrection of all those who are in Christ certain in Jesus, the, the first fruits. We've already seen the prototype. We've already seen you do it. And so we look forward, Lord, to you fulfilling all of your promises to us many of which will come on that day. And we look forward to dwelling with you and all of your people in the world to come and what you'll have for us when you make this world new. We do not know, but we know it's going to be better. Theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the priests. Jesus is better than any of the sacrifices. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus gives us a better country and a better land and a better hope and a better future. And we thank you. And as we worship you, Lord, just fill our hearts with just a foretaste, like a little taste of that wonder and joy that we're going to feel in the resurrection. Lord, we pray that some of that joy, some of that hope, some of that wonder, some of that certainty would just leak back from the future into the present, into our hearts by the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.